Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. There are a few more optimistic thinkers about our 21st century technological future than the president and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association, Gary Shapiro the author of the New York Times bestselling Ninja Innovation, as well as this year's Ninja Future. Shapiro believes that we have what he describes in Ninja Future as a moral obligation to unleash technological innovation. And so to begin our conversation about not just Ninja Future, but all of our futures, I asked him if he saw himself as the last techno-optimist in today's increasingly dark climate of techno-pessimism. No, Andrew, you're the uh, beginning of the pessimist movement, and you, you're the father of it. But I think in terms of technology and innovation, which has basically extended our lives, allowed us to live healthier, to communicate anywhere in the world, to move freely and quickly, to be safe, to educate our kids, and has radically changed our lives. So we got out of the caves essentially, and move to become a modern man, I still believe in the power of innovation and technology to make our lives better. In your new book, Ninja Future, you say that we have, and I'm quoting you here, a moral obligation to, I guess, leverage or utilize the latest technology. Is it that simple, though? Should we just unleash all these latest technologies, whether it's blockchain or AI or virtual reality? Are all these technologies inevitably for the good? No, just like the harnessing of fire by mankind or the invention of the wheel or the printing press or the automobile or plane or even the computer itself. These are all tools and they can be used for bad purposes. Fire it can be used to injure and kill people. It burns down things. But it also allowed us to stay warm when it was cold and allowed us to have meat that could be cooked and last for a longer period of time. So they allowed us to live longer. All these are just tools. And, you know, a hammer is a tool. A hammer can be used to kill someone or it could be used to build a home. Frankly, I think it's the role of government to set the guidelines or the lanes for which businesses and technologies can operate in in a safe way. For the most part, existing laws protect most uses of technology, but not all. And sometimes governments go too far. For example, in the interest of privacy or privacy, as you might say, Governments have gone very, very far and inhibited innovation and sharing of medical information in a way which has not benefited the population because privacy was put way above healthcare. And it's also in Europe now, GDPR and the right to be forgotten above, above knowledge. 
and above sharing of information. So there's a balance that has to be debated, discussed, and resolved in different societies on how we balance innovation and good uses versus harms, real harms, not just theoretical or potential harms, because we've been hearing about theoretical and potential harms so often that never existed. And it's something that we should be aware of, that we should be talking about real stuff. So just to clarify, in your day job, what exactly do you do? Who do you represent? I represent over 2,000 American technology companies that are innovators. 80% of them are small businesses, startups, small and medium-sized enterprises. 20% are all the big ones you've come to know, whether it's Apple or YouTube or Best Buy or you name it. Most companies that are well-known are members of ours. We also have something called the Disruptive Innovation Council, which represents companies that disrupt, like Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, Pandora, Google and others which have changed the way we do things in a way that it's uncomfortable to people, some people like you, who just see the negatives or say, wait, that's not how we've always done things. How we've always done things. And fortunately... But Gary, it's not just me. I mean... I- it used to be just you. You've started a movement, Andrew. No, don't blame me. I think you were the first book I've read that had that in there, and I've heard you speak. Okay, but over the last 10 years, the zeitgeist has shifted dramatically from being a few people like myself worrying about the impact of technology on the world. Now, if anything, the majority of people are worried about it. What's happened? Why is this the case? Well, it's always easier to write a negative story than a positive one. And also, I think it depends how you ask the question. If you ask the question, let's take self-driving cars, for example. Would you like to be safer in your car? Would you like to avoid road rage? Would you like to pay lower auto insurance premiums? Do you know anyone who's been hurt or killed and you'd like to avoid an accident like that in the future? Everyone's going to say they like it. They want it. They want a self-driving car. When they get into a self-driving car, you know, we found there was a, actually in Las Vegas, there's real life information because Lyft has over 50,000 rides in self-driving cars and over 92% of the people liked it. And so they want to do it again. So the truth is people like things that they experience. They like the benefits of them. But if you ask people before they got an iPhone, whether they wanted an iPhone, they would have said no. If you ask people all sorts of questions, they'd often say no. It's all how you ask the question, how you lay it up. And certainly sensationalism and clicks are more important in today's culture and society than extolling the benefits of something. But, you know, innovation will win in the long run. Are you suggesting then that when it certainly when it comes to government regulation or the lack of government regulation, that we can trust the Ubers, the Lyfts, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, many of your other clients. Should we trust these people with their technology and the implication of their technology to ultimately make the world a better place? Is there a role for government in all this? Absolutely, there's a role for government in all of this. And the role of government is to balance competing needs, look at specific harms, and lay out the guidelines. Now, generally, especially in the Western world, a lot of the existing laws take care of it. It is unfair or monopolistic to do certain things, and that could be fought out in court and debated or the government's imposing fines, and companies will make decisions as to what they do in the future. But I think one of the things companies are entitled to do is to innovate without permission. They're entitled to know what the law is so they can follow the law, and they're entitled to engage in vigorous debate about what the law should be. I'm talking about the Western world here. I'm not talking about communist governments or things like that. I'm talking about encouraging innovation, balancing against privacy, against things that could be done wrongly, and figure out what is the best role. But I think that's the debate society should be having. It shouldn't be whether or not they exist or whether or not innovation is bad or good. 
innovation will definitely and can definitely make us better as human beings in so many different ways, from our health, to our safety, to our education, to our transportation and communication, to how we grow plants and crops and whether or not we have clean water. Who could not want this stuff? But yes, there are negative sides as well. And I think companies are responsible for their actions, but they also are entitled to rights, including the right to innovate without permission and the right to know what the law is and engage in that debate. Let's talk about Europe. What do you make of what's happening in Europe? The antitrust investigation, the GDPR, the aggressive positions on taxation, the way in which certain European governments like Germany are making the platforms more accountable for the content put on them. Do you think Europeans have gone too far? I think Europeans, with some exceptions, and countries were led by progressive leaders like uh, France, which has Emmanuel Macron, who's really focused on innovation. And we see this also in uh, one of our award winners because we rank the countries by innovation friendly. They are the, uh, oh, you have? Yes, we do. And the French lead? No, they do not lead. But I'll tell you, uh, Holland, the Dutch do a great job. I was just there last week. You know, they're focusing on entrepreneurship and innovation. You and I have done some debates in Holland, right? Yes, we have, actually. I recall that fondly. We even shared a taxi together. <laughs> but what the Europeans have not done well by almost any measure is produce successful, innovative companies in the last 20 or 30 years. The number of companies which have a billion-dollar valuation, unicorns, you could count them on both hands in Europe. And yet in the U.S., which is actually a smaller population, you know, into the several hundred, as is China. And so you have to ask yourself why that is. Now, one rational explanation is there's multiple languages and a lot of the unicorns have come from internet platforms where it's easier to introduce in one language. But there are other explanations. There is definitely a heavy focus on regulation. There is not an innovation culture. People are not taking risks. If you have a startup in Europe and it doesn't work, you're viewed as a failure in the U.S. and arguably Canada and Israel, you're viewed as having a better education and being smarter once you fail. So there's a, a lot of different things. The focus on privacy, Europe has this obsession with erasing history, allowing people to do it, with guarding privacy in such a way where it only favors big companies, frankly, and doesn't really help startups with GDPR. It's just not a healthy environment. And I think some of what you see in Europe is just sheer jealousy. They use a more of a tax, a vague antitrust policy to try to tax successful companies from other countries. And it's just, to me, that it's not a good strategy if you want to be innovative yourself. But I love Europe. I love going there. It's beautiful. But I just think that they should be a little more innovation biased, welcome experimentation rather than trying to preserve the status quo of a thousand years ago. Let's specifically address the impact of technology, particularly digital technology on democracy. As you know, there's a lot of talk about the way in which Facebook in particular was used in the last election, the way it's used in Europe, seemingly manipulated by unaccountable, often invisible forces to corrupt democracy. Are you worried about that? I think it's something I'm worried about, and I hope my government is worried about as well as our freedom-loving governments. I mean, I believe passionately in the value of democracy and free exchange of ideas. And I think to the extent that other countries get in and try to corrupt that using platforms is something we should discourage. And it's clearly illegal as a country and as a society or a democratic country. I believe that there's a future battle that's underway on our very focus on democracy and freedom of religion, freedom to access the internet, freedom to choose and to vote, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom to talk. And we're seeing it uh, played out with China, which is ranking everyone there on their social media rankings by next year. It affects whether you can travel, whether you can get a hotel room, even where you are on a dating site. It uses all sorts of nefarious ways to control people. And the world is going towards a pretty important difference where you have China and totalitarianism 
and its axis of countries. They have a Belt and Roads Initiative. They're fighting it out over technology in terms of artificial intelligence. You know, they have no privacy there at all. And as you know, AI relies upon a huge amount of data. And if you could have all the data you want uh, from 1.4 billion people, which is more than double the population of Europe and the U.S. put together, and you have a million engineers a year that are graduating, many focused on AI, and I think it's going to be, they're at a pretty good competitive strategic seat. But I think that it's not just an economic battle we're fighting. We're fighting a battle for the hearts and minds and philosophy and future of the world and our grandkids and their grandkids because if you eliminate the rights of the individual in favor of the state, and the state is controlled by just a few people with all the technology tools, that's what scares me. What doesn't scare me is the fact that Google and Facebook and Twitter and other companies that have succeeded are out there pushing at the edges, perhaps, maybe doing some things they shouldn't be doing, but it's upon our governments to say they're wrong. Is that suggesting that they've been naughty, pushing at the edges? It's suggesting that you compare what they are doing to compare what China is trying to do and what Russia was doing in the last election, potentially. And I think the gravity of the threats are really different. And the not everything was equally illegal or equally immoral. And the fact that these new areas of law, which haven't been resolved, and then all of a sudden, there's people like you saying, break up the companies, penalize them, put taxes on them, shut them down. I mean, that's a very, very anti-innovation, dangerous approach when really the companies are just combinations of people trying to do what they think is right, trying to solve some of the ills of society, trying to gather data, for example, to solve a healthcare problems and do things like that. And yes, they do intersect with privacy issues and government control. And maybe they took ad revenue in from Russia that they shouldn't have, or they had partners they shouldn't have had. But give me a break. The magnitude of those sins are nothing compared to what Russia has done, which is try to influence an election and destroy democracy. Or where China is heading was to impose its view of the world on societies everywhere and do it through economic power as well as pure scientific power. So I think that is something that I view as a bigger threat. I don't lose sleep about the biggest companies. They can take care of themselves and they'll argue whether or not they should be broken up and things like that. But I don't think they should be broken up for relatively minor sins. Some of the other guests on this show have lost sleep over the role of some of these larger companies. John Borthwick, for example, who, again, is not a tech naysayer. He's the CEO of Betaworks, one of the top incubators, tech incubators in New York, explicitly compared Facebook with the Chinese government. Shoshana Zuboff, the author of Surveillance Capitalism, argues that the kind of architecture of this new digital capitalism isn't that different from what's going on in China. What I do want you to talk about is whether or not you think that the Silicon Valley model, the free model of companies like Facebook and Google, which are based on the sale of advertising, whether you think in any way that's flawed. It may not be totalitarianism, but is it ultimately a profound threat to our privacy? I don't think it's a profound threat to our privacy. What I see, for example, is third world countries, they say, leave them alone. They give us services we get for free, access to information, education, communication with people we know. This is great. Of course, we couldn't afford to pay this to get onto Google or Facebook, and it's hugely valuable. I do think there's an obligation to disclose what you're doing, to be transparent, to put your choices in simple language that people understand. Are your clients doing that, Gary? Are the Facebooks and Googles of the world putting it in that simple language? Do most people understand how our data is being used? I think increasingly they're trying to. It's a very difficult thing to do. If I had to do it all over again, I should have pushed harder for what I was pushing for a few years ago, which was just develop a platinum and gold silver model that people could click on. And we've all clicked on things to get on website that we'll never, ever read or understand. I think it's part of just being in a new, developed, quickly developing area of technology science. People are pushing the boundaries 
They're trying to do what's right, generally. I don't think outwardly, aggressively trying to rip off the public. And the other thing about Facebook and Google and, and Microsoft and Apple and Qualcomm and Intel and all these other great American companies that have been attacked for supposedly nefarious things in the last several years, especially by U.S. governments and European governments, is that these are crown jewel companies that are American companies and that any other country in the world would treat much better. But I think discussions have to be held in a reasonable way without threatening the very existence and painting people with ulterior motives and things like that. I just think it's pretty clear what the companies are doing. They're trying to create new services to benefit their consumers, to target advertising. And I'm sure you yourself have seen the benefit and use targeted advertising. It makes a difference. Of course, it upsets people. It upsets, it upsets traditional media because all of a sudden they're seeing newspapers are going under, magazines are struggling, even broadcast television, if you're not reality TV at this point covering politics, it's a struggle. It upsets people. They vent. Change is difficult. The status quo is easy to protect and to defend, but change is challenging for people. And we are a change-oriented nation. We're a change-oriented culture and society, and we've all benefited from the change. The fact that you and I are alive today would be a miracle 100 years ago, and it's because of innovation and technology, and we're still at the very beginning. It's going to keep getting better unless we screw it up. But part of it is having discussions like this one, where you talk about what kind of change, what kind of boundaries are needed, where government should regulate, where industry should self-regulate, and what companies should do this ethical. I mean, companies will hear from shareholders, from activists and others, but sometimes that's too much. I mean, just recently, California, with one of the biggest pension funds in the country, is now aggressively backing away from all the social values they were putting on who they would invest in and who they wouldn't. Because they realize they're not doing their fundamental job, which is to get a return for their pensioners that they have to protect. And, you know, there are other big issues here. One is innovation. Another is obviously privacy. A third is our own health and safety. And a fourth is just the, the fact that we're humans and we always try to make it better. And that's what we do. And I would say especially those of us in the Western world, especially those of us almost genetically who are in the United States, because that's who we are. You talk a lot about innovation, Gary. You're one of the world's leading experts on innovation. But couldn't you argue that the current economy isn't particularly innovative or it isn't suited for innovators, that these companies, some of your clients indeed, have become too large? And that if you're a startup person today, it's very hard to break into these markets because they're controlled by these trillion-dollar companies. And in the past, the big tech monopolists like AT&T or Microsoft have either been broken up or been investigated by antitrust. Is there a need for some sort of antitrust regime in the U.S.? It's beginning. Well, many, many years ago, when I was a law student, I actually served a member of an anti-commission to reform the antitrust laws. I served one of the members. And I have to say that the antitrust laws are ambiguous globally. In the United States, Europe is probably one of the worst in terms of that. And that allows arbitrary enforcement, people trying to make a name for themselves in a government to push a new antitrust theory. I think the truth, though, is, is that I don't think we need a whole bunch of new laws. I think we need a discussion around what are the specific harms and what we're trying to accomplish, what is illegal and what is not illegal. Because rather than just demonize companies, there is value to customize and targeted advertising, but there's also value to anonymity and the ability to opt out of things. I think once we agree on what the societal principles are, the challenge is I disagree with your premise about it being more difficult to be a startup today. I know I've heard that. But I've also seen on Wall Street recently that a whole bunch of companies are having successful launches, publicly traded exchanges, all sorts of different ways. And that allows a tremendous amount more money to go and fuel startups and fund startups. And there's no shortage of funding for startups that I'm seeing, at least in the United States. I've heard globally it's an issue, and that's one of the strengths the U.S. has. People are more willing to take risks. 
but you know, where it has to do with the tax system, it has to do with available capital, and it has to do with an appetite for risks and an opportunity to go public or to be acquired. And yes, many of these companies have acquired other companies, but that is another exit strategy for startups. You know, if you're a startup, you're either going to succeed wildly with your own EPO, you're going to be acquired, or you're going to try to be an independent company. And all three of those are very valid. What you don't want to do is just go under. And you obviously don't want to have a perception you're being treated unfairly because one of the major platforms is excluding you or favoring their own group as opposed to their favor their own products or contracts as opposed to someone who should be freely available. And the question goes to whether these are more First Amendment type platforms where everyone should have an equal say, or at least consumers, in my view, should be at least informed whether or not there's a preference given. And consumers can make pretty good choices when they're informed in language they understand and it's simple and they have alternatives. It's just like with broadband. We need competition at broadband. We don't necessarily need strict laws on net neutrality. Once you have serious competition, a lot of the problems go away. But right now, I see a lot of entrepreneurs out there every day. You've been really, as always, a good spirit in in dealing with my nasty negative questions. So let's end on a positive note. I'm going to give you the stage very briefly to describe a world in, say, 15 or 20 years that really reflects how technology will make the planet and humanity better. Why should we be keeping our hands off tech? Because tech's going to make the world so much better. So the stage is yours, Gary. Thank you, Andrew. So in the next two or three decades, we should be able to eliminate hunger. We should be able to grow crops that feed people, uh, and we have clean water, we'll eliminate most diseases, we'll be able to allow people to work less, they'll be uh, have uh, greater forms of mobility without pollution, we'll have worked our way towards a greener world, perhaps eating less meat would be one of the solutions. A lot of these problems have many, many different solutions and approaches, but just watching, for example, meat substitutes out there, seeing how disease is conquered. We'll have health care solutions which will be tailored to us, our specific genetic makeup, where we live, the environmental conditions we're in, and based on our past history. And we'll have knowledge which will allow us to benefit. In the next two or three decades, we'll live much longer, healthier lives. We'll be able to challenge and enrich. We'll be able to educate our kids in a way which is much more targeted towards them and their skills and their needs and their way of learning, which is much more adjustable. We'll be spending more time taking care of our older people. They'll need the personal care, but we'll have technology assisting that as well. So they could avoid major problems and harms and injuries and falls, and we'll be notified of them. So it will be a better world by many, many measures. Maybe there'll be other problems. I imagine we'll be dealing with cybersecurity issues and the fact that people still like fighting each other and creating enemies of different types. But some of the major things we deal with now including terrorism, could be minimized by simple use of technology, whether it's using biometrics and and facial recognition in airports to get the people who are likely to do something bad or by psychometrics or others. The technology is a solution to almost every problem there is involving the human condition. We'll be talking about different issues, perhaps, like how we stay happy when we're 110. We'll be talking about more artificial limbs. We'll be talking about greater use of artificial intelligence, obviously, in different ways and more humanoid, human-like robots, which will be assisting us and working with us as humans. So I think this is a great, bright, and brilliant future that would enliven our family and friendships and allow us to do what we want culturally in a way which is very beneficial. And I lose sleep every night thinking that government will do something to hurt that because of Henny penny sky is falling, which I've heard all my life, frankly, about technology, whether it was the legality of the VCR destroying the motion picture and recording industries to HDTV destroying broadcasting to you name it. 
I've dealt with the last 35 years every type of fear there is about technology, and almost all of them have totally proven to be unfounded. That may even be a world I'd like to live in, Gary. Thank you, Andrew, for giving me this opportunity. You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show. Now we're about to take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Now, we've got a real big favor that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you head over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.